I'm reading from uh, Isaiah 9, 1 to 7, and it's on page 523 in the Pew Bibles. Nevertheless, that time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali will be humbled, but there will be a time in the future when Galilee of the Gentiles, which lies along the road that runs between the Jordan and the sea, will be filled with glory. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light, a light will shine. You will enlarge the nation of Israel and its people will rejoice. They will rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest and like warriors dividing the plunder. For you will break the yoke of their slavery and lift the heavy burden from their shoulders. You will break the oppressor's rod, just when you destroyed the army of Midian. The boots of the warrior and the uniforms, bloodstained by war, will all be burned. They will be fuel for the fire. For a child is born to us, a son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of Heaven's armies will make this happen. Amen to that. And Matthew four twelve to seventeen, page seven hundred and thirty-five. When Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he left Judea and returned to Galilee. He went first to Nazareth then left there and moved to Capernaum, beside the Sea of Galilee, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This fulfilled what God said through the prophet Isaiah. In the land of Zebulun and of Naphtali, beside the sea, beyond the Jordan River, in Galilee, where so many Gentiles live, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who lived in the land where death cast its shadow, a light has shined. From then on, Jesus began to preach, repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. St Andrew's is God's word. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, as we come to your word in these weeks before we celebrate your birth, we ask again that you would humble our hearts before your word. Lord, you know that any communicator is imperfect. We have inabilities to communicate the wonderful truths of your word effectively. We need your Holy Spirit. We need hearts that are wanting and desiring to hear from you. And so, Lord, come this morning into this church and have your way. Honour your name this morning. Glorify it. Let the words of your scripture become fire in our hearts. This is a work of the Spirit. It's a miracle and we ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
This morning we are pausing our uh, series of messages on the Sermon on the Mount, which are called the Jesus Manifesto, because we're in Advent, we're in Christmas, and um, we're going to have a couple of weeks looking, three weeks looking at one of the prophecies, Isaiah 9. So that Isaiah 9 passage will be read three times in a row, and the first week I'm going to look at a first part of it, and then um, next week we'll look at the next part, and lastly we'll be finishing off with those, those wonderful statements, to us a child is born, and that'll be on uh, Christmas Eve. And so for the next three weeks, that's what we're going to do. And this morning, we're going to have a look at this key prophecy. And I've got three points. And as you know, sometimes I tell you what I'm going to tell you. Then I tell you. Then I tell you what I've told you. And I do apologize, kids. I'm normally quite quick. But this morning, though you might not find me quick, actually. When I was young, I even found 10 minutes pretty long. But this morning, I am a little longer. But you guys are amazing in what you did this morning. So, and I'm, I can't speak that fast. I usually speak really fast, but I can't lightning fast this. So it will be slightly longer. There's three things I want to do this morning. A key aspect of Jesus' ministry was his fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies, predictions about him. And Isaiah 9 is one of those prophecies, and it's mentioned in Matthew. Then two, essential to the Christian faith is this understanding that Jesus, uh, the Old Testament prophets, speak of the Messiah bringing light and hope to the dark world. So Jesus is this light all right, that the Isaiah prophet was talking about. And in three, we receive this light in our hearts and lives by repentance and turning to God. That's what Jesus says in Matthew's gospel, and it results in joy. That's what Isaiah passage mentions, and it, it is a fruit of repentance, and that the nation of Israel being enlarged, that is Gentiles coming in, non-Jewish people. So that's what we're going to do this morning. Does that make sense? Are you guys ready? I know it's going to be slightly longer today, but buckle your seatbelts in, let's get underway. So number one, one key aspect of Jesus' ministry was his fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. Isaiah, and mentioned there in Matthew. So you know, if someone turned up this morning and they were spiritually seeking, not sure about this whole Christian faith gig, perhaps uh, they were like me when I was ages ago, looking at the five pillars of the Islamic faith, checking that out, checking out the noble truths, checking out Buddhism and Hindus and atheism, just discovering what is the truth, right? And you wanted to know some key things about Jesus and what do Christians believe, then one key claim to know, it's just good intellectually to know, and I've discovered it to be true in my heart as well, funny that, being a minister, is that also is that Jesus claimed to fulfill the prophecies, or another way of saying it, the predictions written hundreds of years ago before Jesus was born. And this is massive. There are over 300 predictions or prophecies about the Messiah in the Jewish writings. So many detailed ones. And if we were to do a sermon series, I, it is sort of tempting. It would probably take me two or three years to go through all 300. So this morning in the run-up to Easter, we're looking at one passage with a few of them tied up into it. And so we're looking at this one. We're just laser-like focusing at how Jesus fulfilled these prophecies. And so even if you know this, and a lot of you will know Jesus fulfilled the prophecies, it is worth refreshing with the wonder and awe about how Jesus fulfilled these prophecies and the divine power we are not just believing in Jesus being the Son of God through blind faith. There is compelling evidence for those who have searched out. Do you know this? And so this morning, just as a, little, as a recap, I'm going to play a very a brief clip. It's from a longer series. I'll just edit it down to three minutes. And I'm going to turn the light out and I'll just... Yep. Over the course of this entire series of drive-through history, we've mentioned ancient prophecies about a future Messiah that the Gospels say were fulfilled in the life, ministry, 
death and resurrection of Jesus. Remarkably, scholars count hundreds of these prophecies in the Hebrew scriptures, over 300 in fact. Even more remarkable, these predictions were made by multiple authors over the course of about a thousand year time period. When the resurrected Jesus was eating fish with his disciples on the Sea of Galilee, he reminded them of the things that had happened during his ministry. For the first time, Jesus opened their eyes to all the prophecies that had been fulfilled by him. He said, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Luke 24, 44. Again, we're talking about Jesus being the fulfillment of over 300 prophecies without missing a single note. The odds of that happening by chance are zero. And so for any person to fulfill them all, it would take their circumstances being divinely orchestrated. In fact, that is the claim of the Gospels. Now, while many of the prophecies of the future Messiah were general in nature, some were very specific, like where the Messiah would be born and how he would die. The Messiah will be a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Judah, of the house of David. He will be conceived by a virgin, born in Bethlehem, and taken to Egypt as a child. The Messiah will be heralded by the messenger of the Lord and anointed by the Holy Spirit to minister in Galilee, perform miracles, and preach good news. He will cleanse the temple, enter Jerusalem as a king riding on a donkey, be rejected by the Jewish people, and betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver. The Messiah will die a humiliating death involving rejection, mocking, beating, the piercing of his hands and feet, and the piercing of his side. He will be crucified with thieves, and his executioners will cast lots for his clothing. They will give him gall and vinegar to drink, but unlike the other victims, none of his bones will be broken. In the end, he will be buried in a rich man's tomb, but will rise from the dead and ascend into heaven. So we're going to hone in on one of these hundreds of absolutely incredible specific prophecies. If you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you have a brain to think, then actually discover there is Jesus, the, the Messiah written about in the Old Testament. Is he the Messiah? This is really pivotal stuff to know whether this really is true. There is evidence here that can be discovered. We're going to hone in on one of these prophecies this morning. And so you get to see this here. 
that this, the prophecy here in Isaiah 9, Jesus says this fulfilled, or Matthew says this fulfilled what God said through the prophet Isaiah. So what Jesus was doing here is that many of those prophecies that were, were, were predicted about Jesus written, Jesus couldn't actually go out of his way to sort of fulfill. You know, look at his diary this morning. Man, the, today's a tough day. I've got 23 prophecies to fulfill. Whew, better get started at 5 a.m. and get out there, a bit like the amazing race. Get out there and try and fulfill those prophecies. A lot of them he couldn't, right? But there was some that he could. And this was one that Jesus could. So he was looking at his diary and saying, I need to get to this spot. And Jesus was intentionally going to a certain area to start his miracles and his ministry because in doing so, he was proclaiming himself to be the Messiah. And if you were saying that I am God, and if I said I was to say that this morning, hey, God, like kids, I'm God. Wouldn't that be cool? There'd be three things I would be if I said that and I believed it. One is I would be mad. All right, crazy, lock me up. The other is that I would be bad, one of those bad cult leaders, or the third is I'd be God. And Jesus was making huge claims. And we get to see this in the Isaiah passage, that, he, that actually, that Jesus is seeing himself as the Messiah. So one, a key aspect of Jesus' ministry, even if you're not a Christian, handy to know that Jesus was claiming to be the Messiah, fulfilling hundreds of predictions, prophecies, fulfilling them. And carrying them out, every single one of them. And some of them are in Isaiah. And as we read those songs and Christmas carols, they reference to them. Two, essential to the Christian faith is the understanding that Jesus, as the Old Testament speak of, sees himself as the Messiah bringing light and hope to a dark world. Right, so the Isaiah prophecy, which Matthew quotes, has this whole theme of darkness, despair, and gloom. And then light enters the world. Right, have a look at it. Nevertheless, that time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. In the next part in bold, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in the land of deep darkness, a light will shine. This is the area of the Gentiles on the borderline of Jews and Gentiles living together. The prophecy is saying that the light of the world is going to come in for both Jewish people and non-Jewish people. So Jesus is claiming to be the light of the world. This is a bold, audacious claim. All right, and then to rub salt into the wound, he's claiming that the people around him are in darkness. All right? Now, when I was a non-Christian, and I just hated going to church, and I was just away, I was an atheist, if I had said, someone said to me that you're living in darkness, I would be offended with them, right? I'd be saying, what? No, no, Christians are living in darkness. I'm doing actually pretty well. Oh, there are bad Christians out there doing bad stuff. I'm in light. Right? But this is the claim. It was quite offensive. And I'm sure that actually there's a lot of Kiwis today who would think something similar. Right? Or other Kiwis would say, all religions bring light. And it's intolerant to claim that only Christianity or Jesus brings light. And other Kiwis would go even further to say, all religions except for Christianity bring light. Christianity only brings darkness. <laughs> Christianity is the one religion that's awful. I've heard various uh, 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 versions of that. And to a point on the last thing, Jesus might actually have some agreement. Jesus does say, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will inherit the, the kingdom of heaven. Only those who do the will of my Father in heaven. And there are many people, Jesus says, who will cause offense and cause those of little faith, new in faith, to fall because of their evil actions. And Jesus gives a warning. It would be better a millstone be hung around their neck. Then they lead away. But he does talk about false disciples who will destroy the faith. And so, of course, no doubt the Christian clergy with the abuse power, or I can think of one of the early missionaries. There were many wonderful early missionaries into New Zealand. But there was one 
who decided to have a side hustle selling muskets. I mean, hey, you're a missionary, set up a firearms thing, gave a whole bunch of muskets, got some money, hey, into the slaughter of tens of thousands of Murray, but he got a bit of money on the side. That's not a good gig if you're a missionary coming to land to get muskets to slaughter to help into tribal warfare. But so there are some people bad out there. So yes, but Jesus is still claiming to be this light. So I don't think we can hide from that Jesus warns us. But I want to suggest that thinking of Jesus, the light of the world, and the difference that Jesus has made in the world, I think that most Kiwis cannot imagine life if Christianity had never existed, if Jesus had never come, if this prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9 had never been fulfilled about Jesus coming, bringing light into the world. Most modern Kiwis, for example, take it for granted that every life is valuable. They love the idea of equality before the law and caring for the vulnerable, and that they have this understanding of human rights. Right? This is stuff that all, Ze- all New Zealanders sort of support that. Well, where did that come from? It actually came from the Christian faith and the light of Christ. Before Christianity, this is uh, Thucydides, and this was how the world was operating. Right, as the world goes, is only in question between equals and power. This is a, a Greek guy. While the strong do what they can and the weak must suffer, suffer what they must. So in his view, and this is how the ancient Roman world and Greek world operated, is that there is the right and respect operates when you have two equals in power. So a, a, a bird does not have inalienable rights when a, when a cat is playing with it. <laughs> the cat does what it wants and the bird must suffer what it must because it's weak. And that's how it works in human relationships. Right, respect is only given to those who are equal in power. And so slavery, uh, uh, the incredible sexual and physical exploitation of people, children being exposed, the horrific abuse of so many people was the normal. And then Christianity came in with its view that all humans, from a child in the womb to the very old and frail, have value and dignity, whether you're a slave or a rich person, whoever. And this changed the world. Now, fast forward with me, 1,500 years. So the Christianity came in and brought these values. And then in the 1880s, are you still with me? Are you still with me? All right. Light of the world. So gospel's come in. It has changed Europe. Then in the 1880s, there was this idea that God's existence and the Bible being true was suddenly in retreat. Christianity was seen on the downturn among the intellectual circles. And there was this guy called Frederick Nietzsche, right? And he was a passionate atheist who hated Christianity with all his heart And nevertheless, in my view, he was a genius, absolute genius. Might be an atheist, hates Christianity, but he's still very smart. And he was, one of, I think, one of the smartest minds. And he came up and he said that basically in Europe in the 1880s, they've killed the idea of God's existence. He didn't actually believe God existed, but the idea of God's existence, he believed, was underpinning all of European society, all of the values, all of the things. And he said that once you've killed the idea of God, he believed all hell was about to break loose. In the, Rome, in, in the European world. And he wrote this in the, called The Parable of a Madman. And I read this to you. Have you not heard of a madman who lit a lantern in the bright morning hours, ran into the marketplace and cried incessantly, I seek God, I seek God. As many of those who do not believe in God were standing around just then, he provoked much laughter. Has he got lost? Asked one. Did he lose his way like a child? Asked another. Or is he hiding? Is God afraid of us? Has he gone on a voyage, emigrated? Thus they yelled and laughed. The madman jumped into their midst and pierced them with his eyes. Where is God, he cried. I'll tell you. We've killed him, you and I. All of us are his murderers, but how did we do this? 
How could we drink up the sea who gave us a sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? What were we doing when we unchained the earth from its sun? It's about the value systems of Europe. Is there, left, is there still any up or down, or right or wrong? Do we not feel the breath of empty space? Has it not become colder? Is it not night continually closing in on us? How shall we comfort ourselves, murderer of all murderers? Here the madman fell silent and looked again at his listeners, and they too were silent and stared at him in astonishment. At last he threw his lantern on the ground and went out. I have come too early, he said. My time is not yet. This tremendous event is still on its way, still wandering. It has not yet reached the ears of men. What Friedrich Nietzsche was saying was that even though he hated Christianity and he didn't believe in God's existence, he was a moral nihilist. He understood that all these values of looking after the weak and caring for the poor and human rights, they're all Christian values. And the world had killed, the intellectual elites in the 1880s had killed the idea that God actually existed, but they were still living to the rules that come to, they're still living to the rules of those value systems. And what he predicted was this in the 20th century, is that there'd be a few people who would have finally realized that there is no right and wrong, Jesus is not the light of the world, he brings no light, and you can do what you want, and the strong can seize what they want, and millions will die. He predicted Stalin and Hitler, who would totally throw down the Christian faith in the areas and bring power. And so here's the thing, right? Thinking of us today, right? You know, in the Canterbury Plains, and this is what I notice all the time, is often you see people here in the Canterbury Plains, and there's plenty of people who still live in lifelong marriages. They give to the poor. They're kind and generous. They believe in human rights, but they also have a distaste for religion in general and Christianity in particular. So these are lovely, nice people but they don't think that Jesus has brought any light to the world. They'll be pleased to see Christianity dead. From Friedrich Nietzsche's perspective, they are living to rules of a religious system that's long gone dead. The news has come too early. They haven't understood. And from a Christian's perspective, as a Christian, of course I am one, I would argue that Europe and New Zealand do not understand how much light of the gospel has brought to this nation, how much our values as a nation and the Europe were underpinned by the, by the light of the gospel. So no doubt as marriage rates drop, family structures collapse, fraud increases, I suspect Friedrich Nietzsche would be quite pleased, actually, if he was around today, because his prophecy in the parable of the madman's coming true, the value system's collapsing. But actually, I'd argue he was wrong. It's a tragedy not a good thing. And this is what the prophecy in Jesus gets to, that when Jesus came into the world, he was going to bring light that would change the entire world, and billions of lives and countries would be changed by this, and it has been. Our nation, God of nations, founded on Christian values to a certain extent. So three things here. First, a key aspect of Jesus' ministry was fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. That's how he saw himself. Hundreds of predictions about Jesus. Two, essential to the Christian faith is the understanding that Jesus, and as the Old Testament speak of, he's the Messiah who's going to bring light to planet Earth and he's going to change the entire social structures of this planet. Human rights, belief in the, and, and that, that humans have value, all these things were changed through this peasant being born, prophesied in Isaiah. And then three, we receive this light personally by repentance and turning to God, and it results in joy. A rejoicing is a fruit of repentance, and the nation of Israel will be enlarged. 
So you might think, well, that's really boring stuff, this whole Friedrich Nietzsche society being changed, yawn. That's all society stuff. Well, yes, I don't think it is. I think it's pivotal to actually understanding what's happening in this world. But I would say, secondly, that actually it's not a society thing. What God does in our individual lives is massive. It's, it changes society, but it changes our individual lives as well. And the two, of course, are connected. And that one of the fruits that actually happens as we have this light in our lives is we have joy. This is the prophecy in Isaiah, as people will come to the light, they will rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest. So it's a sense that the prophecy in Isaiah, predicting what Jesus would do upon billions of lives around the world, is they would leave darkness, they would come into light, and then their hearts would be filled with joy. This is the prophecy, all right? So after, I have to say, after last week, I have, I've had a lot of Catherine and Alistair illustrations about the light and joy, and, and I have to say that I have found the joy of the Lord has been my strength over the last few weeks, uh, seeing as Catherine's pain levels have fluctuated and all these things in my life, but I don't think you guys have heard that. So I reached actually to Nally at the back there, and I said, Nally, I flicked her during um, lunchtime, I said, can you tell me in your own story what God has done in your life? So Nellie, during a morning tea break, she, or probably on her cell phone, I imagine. Was it cell phone? Yeah, his cell phone. Just flicked it up, and I'm going to read it to you. You guys with me? I'm going to hang with and see what, Nellie, what God Jesus has done in Nellie's life. This is individual light. The joy of coming to know Christ. For those who have experienced the gift of peace and joy found through coming to know Christ know there's nothing in the world quite like it. It opens doors to a place in my soul yet not touched by hope, forgiveness, or compassion. The Holy Spirit has taught me that the joy of the Lord speaks to places that are heavy and broken within all of us. He shines a light upon them so that they may be restored. The inspeutable evidence of a changed heart was not only life-changing for me, but for my son and all those around me. To be humbled so gently and without condition led me to love and understand the call upon my life as a follower of Christ. But it is by no means the easier road. It requires sacrifice. To choose him, to depend on him, means we will face many opportunities to fail him and myself. And I've missed opportunities to move. I've messed up and figuratively banged my head with frustration when I don't understand the why. The process of joy I found journeying with Christ over the years has seen me through deep valleys of depression, single parenting struggles, broken relationships, deep church hurts, and life's unexpected hurdles. But the joy has been a steady companion also on my mountain peaks. I've been abundantly blessed by the joy and love of others when I was unable to draw on it myself. Joy is a heart posture, an attitude we adopt and ask for in times of need. And it's an overflow from the relationship we have with God that requires steady maintenance. I've seen the fruits of carrying joy with me into workspaces, relationships, and communities that has attracted and created invitation to share our stories and what God has done in it. God's word is not empty. The joy of the Lord is my strength. People walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of darkness, a light has dawned, says Nellie. But this is not of me, but it's of God's work in my heart. And because I know this, I treasure it even more greatly. I know who I was and who I could have been without God. But to start having a lifetime left, a lifetime left of learning, I'm convinced, convicted by this, always to run the race with hope we've been promised. Finding joy even in tribulation, not as a facade, not as a fake thing, 
but as a true understanding of how this brings us closer to God. And that was the role that joys had in Nellie's life. And so joy, this light that comes in, is not just changing society. It's aiming to change our individual lives. So I have a question to ask. Do you know personally the joy of the Lord? Have you encountered this? Is the prophecy of Isaiah 9 written centuries before he was born? The proof of it will be in your tribulations. Happiness and joy are different. I would fear to say that I am the most unhappiest I've ever been in 47 years of my life right now. But the joy of the Lord is my strength, and I am full of a joy that is sometimes irrepressible. And this is what the prophecy meant. It changes the world and value system, and it changes an individual heart. It changes Nellie's heart, and it changes mine. And lastly, we get to see it comes, well, second to last, it comes through repentance. If you want this light in your life, this is what Jesus says. He quotes the prophecy, right? Lights comes in the world. And then off the basis of that prophecy, this is what he says. From then on, Jesus began to preach. Repent of your sins, Alistair, and turn to God for the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of joy is near. And the last part of the prophecy that, that actually mentioned in Isaiah is that as this light comes in the world, it will enlarge the nation of Israel. And so Isaiah, because it was mentioning all the Gentiles, Isaiah was actually seeing the day that the light of this world would come in and both Jews and Gentiles would turn to the Messiah and this would be a global church that would change the whole world. And this is one of 300 prophecies about the Messiah written hundreds of years before he was born. So one, a key aspect of Jesus' ministry was his fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. Two, essential to understanding the Christian faith is understanding that Jesus, as the Old Testament speak of, is the Messiah who will bring light and hope to a dark world and the difference he's made in the world. And three, this is an individual thing. We experience this light in our lives by repentance and turning to God. And the result, the fruit of it in our lives is joy. That's a fruit that comes of repentance. And the nation of Israel, so the prophet says, will go around the world and there will be people of every language, tribe, and tongue who will know the Lord. Let me just finish with this. It's not in the notes here. But it's, and it's just my opinion. You guys don't have to share this. But I have an opinion. Lots of Christians have different views on end times and how Christ will return. But I believe there will be a final antichrist, a man of lawlessness, who will raise himself and exalt himself above all things. And in the season before his return, the sense I get from the trajectory of scriptures is the world is going to get a very dark place. But there's going to be Christians who are going to shine brighter. And this dark is going to get darker, and the light is going to get lighter. What uh, Nietzsche said about these strong men who uh, uh, seize power and crush millions, these people are going to rise in numbers. But there's also going to be Christians who are going to shine like stars in the heaven. So my prayer this morning is I don't actually know what's on the horizon in the next few years. When I did the Bait of Satan sermon series about dealing with offense, I noticed that the next year or next year afterwards we had actually the, the COVID thing. And there's all this offense that happened in the church. You guys noticed that in the in society? And I was a whole sermon series. I was like, I got depressed. I said, no one's listened to any of my sermons on defense. I'm just a complete failure as a minister. That's what I said to Catherine. You have a moan session. There's all this anger. May I suggest to you, I wonder whether things will change in the next few years in the world. And whether you have this light 
in here will be all the difference. Just something to ponder. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, I pray that this three weeks as we look in this Advent series at the prophecies written hundreds of years before you were born, we ask that the light of Christ would shine brighter in our hearts and lives and that we would show this light to the world here in Geraldine. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.